Um, there was an elderly lady, mind you, there's an elderly lady, who was well known for her faith and for her boldness in talking about it. She would stand on her porch every day and she would come out and go, praise the Lord. Well, unfortunately, she lived next door to an atheist who would get so mad when she'd do this every day that he would shout back, there ain't no Lord. Well, as time would have it, hard times came on that little old lady and she prayed to God to send her some assistance. So one day she stood on her porch and she shouted out, praise to the Lord. God, please, I need some food. I'm having a hard time, so Lord, if you could please send me some groceries. Well, as it, uh, the next morning, she went and she stood out on her porch and she saw, and there was a large bag of groceries. And she shouted, praise, praise to the Lord. And the neighbor jumped out behind her bushes and said, aha, I told you there was no Lord. I bought those groceries. God didn't. And the lady started jumping up and down, started clapping. She started dancing around her, lot, on her, around her porch. And she started saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Not only did you send me groceries, but you had the devil pay for them. <laughs> so, as we can see from that illustration, God does provide. So let's see what he's provided for us and for the people of Israel in today's lesson of 1 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. You know, back in, I'm going to do a little review here because it's going to show an overall picture. So back in chapter 7, we see that the ark has now returned from enemy hands. But having the ark didn't solve Israel's problem. After 20 years, a new generation had arisen and again they had cried out for radical change. You see, up to this time, Israel looked to uh, Jehovah as their king. This new generation was crying out for an earthly king. They wanted to be, you know, just like every other nation. Well, God used the prophet Samuel to guide them through this dangerous time because it was a time of transition from judges to monarch. Times of change can bring out the best or it can bring out the worst in people. Samuel knew that the idolatry that had been in Israel had been their besetting sin. So Samuel called for a meeting, and he called it up at Mitzvah. There, the Israelites confessed their sins, they prayed for help, and they even set up stones of remembrance. But life goes on, circumstances change, and so do people. Wisdom was needed to adapt to these new changes. Next, we see in chapter 8 that the elders again went to Samuel and they said, you know, we want to have a king. We want to have an earthly king just like everybody else. How easily they had forgotten that God had sent them apart. He had set them so they would not be like the other nations. Well, Samuel knew that this evidence of spiritual decay was not that they were rejecting him, but actually they were rejecting God. This really saddened Samuel. He realized that their request for a king wasn't their only sin. It was that they wanted a king, and they wanted a king right now. The Lord did have a king on the horizon, but it wasn't the right time. So God gave him their request, and he gave him a king. Although in doing so, he used Samuel to chasten the nation and to prepare them for David. Because you see, David was his choice of king in his time. 
Saul, being from the tribe of Benjamin and not from Judah, was evidence that this was not going to be the dynasty that they had hoped for. Because you see in Hosea 13.11 it states, So in my anger I gave you a king, but in my wrath I took it away. Sometimes the greatest judgment God can pronounce is to give us what we think we need. But God being merciful, he wanted his people to understand exactly what they were signing up for. So he commanded Saul to tell them exactly what their request was going to cost him. The key word in the entire message given at that time from God was the word take, not give, take. Because you see, they wanted a king, and the king needed to be supported, so he would take, not give. But in spite of these warnings, they found that God's rules were just too demanding, and so they chose a king anyway. Now, we reach chapter 9, where the focus changes from Samuel to Saul. God's choice for Israel's king. Saul seemed to have all that people could have asked for. He was tall, he was obedient, and he was humble. But we have no indication of his spiritual life. We studied the interesting meeting of Samuel and Saul, the fact that Saul lived within five miles of Ramah and didn't even know who Samuel was, makes me wonder if Saul followed the laws given by God at all. Even more surprising, the servant did. How wondrous the way God provides everything we need to accomplish his will. We find God using lost donkeys as a reason for a meeting. We find the providence of God uses all things to accomplish his will. Donkeys, girls seeking water, small parts of a shekel, even Samuel's timing of his visit. Samuel had been told by God to meet Saul in Ramah and to anoint him king and leader. But when they met, the Lord spoke again to Samuel and he, he pointed him out, to, God pointed him out to Saul and he said, anoint him as king. Needless to say, Saul was surprised at what Samuel was telling him, yet his response was once again humble and his actions were obedient. If that wasn't overwhelming enough, he was next to enjoy a meal in a place of honor, and he got to eat food that was set aside for the priest and followed up by retiring at Samuel's actual home. Wow, how much sleep do you think he got then? <laughs> I wouldn't think much. Because both he and Saul arose, or Samuel, they arose early. They leave for the gates of the city. Samuel tells the servant, you know, you just go right on ahead. So now we get to chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with Samuel executing the office of a prophet. Now you know Samuel was a prophet, he was a judge, and he was a priest. He gave Saul full assurance from God that he was to be king. In verse 1, Samuel took the flask of oil, he poured it on his head, and he kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his inheritance? <coughs> Samuel anointed Saul. So what is anointing? What does it mean to be anointed? Well, the Greek word for anoint is massage, which means to smear or to rub oil. By implication, it means to consecrate for office or consecrate for religious service. And it, the other meaning is alephal, which means to anoint. In biblical times, people were anointed with oil to signify God's blessing. 
or to call on that person's life, as in Exodus 29.7, Exodus 40, verse 9, and 2 Kings 9, verse 6. A person was anointed for a special purpose. He was anointed to be a king, to be a prophet, or to be a priest. Anointing with oil should not be, the anointing oil itself should not be viewed as a magic potion because the oil itself doesn't have any power in it at all. It's only God who can anoint a person for a specific purpose. Here, God was anointing Saul to be a commander and a king. Another meaning of the word anointed is chosen one. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit to free those who have been held captive by sin. That's in Luke 4, 18-19 and Acts 10:38. Samuel gives Saul a kiss signifying homage and allegiance to his king. At the same time, telling Saul that he was to be commander, a commander in war for his people. He was to be dependent on God and would be accountable to God for his stewardship over his inheritance. Samuel gives Saul some signs, starting in verse 2, that would affirm Samuel's words that were truly words of a prophet and that Saul should be king. First, he told him in verse 2 that he would meet two men who would tell him that his lost donkeys had been found and that by this God was telling Saul, look to me, I'll solve your problems. Second, in verses 3 and 4, Saul is told he will meet some pilgrims. They will be going to Bethel to worship and they'll give you two loaves of their bread. God's now telling Saul, you know, I will be the supplier of all your needs. Lastly, Samuel tells him that he will meet up with a band of prophets returning from worship in verses 5 and 6. Saul will join them in prophesying. Now God is telling Samuel, I will provide you with all the power you need for your service. For we see that all sufficiency comes from God. Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and changed, be changed into another man. The Holy Spirit would enable him as long as he was obedient. It is said that the new man would later become self-sufficient and rebellious, changed by God but still wanting to be self-sufficient and rebellious at what the sovereign God had put on his plate. Saul lost the spirit's power. He lost his kingdom, and eventually he was going to lose his life. What has self-sufficiency and rebellion cost you in your life? I can personally tell you that it had cost me an unbelievable lot. In the Old Testament era, God would give the Holy Spirit to some, he would give them the Holy Spirit to accomplish certain tasks. But he could take away the Holy Spirit as well. Believers today are under a new covenant, not the old covenant, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever. John 14, verses 16 to 19. It's a seal that we are his children, Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. 
When David asked that the spirit not be taken away, as he did in Psalm of 51, verse 11, he was remembering Saul. Today, we can grieve the spirit, Ephesians 4.30. We can even quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. But we cannot drive him away. Praise God. Samuel now gives some directions. He says this in verses 7 to 9. It shall be when these signs come to you, for you yourself, uh, do for yourself what occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and, and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart and all those signs came about on that day. You know, Saul was told to proceed to Gilgal to, and to start his reign. After waiting seven days, Samuel would arrive to offer sacrifices and give, her, give further instruction. Verse 9 tells us that upon leaving, God changed his heart. And all the prophecies of Samuel happened on that same day. As with Saul, we need to remember anyone whom God calls to service, he will equip. So verse 10. When they came to the hill, there behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. Verses 11 and 12 show the shock of the people witnessing Saul's actions. Saul, you see, was a secular man. He wasn't a spiritual man. So when he began prophesying, this was an unexpected event, and it caused the people to question, who was this guy's teacher? Where did he learn these things? There's no response from Saul, and he humbly leaves to meet his uncle at the high place. There, his uncle asks, where have you been? Saul explains his journey, and he's, it tells him about the meeting with Samuel. He tells his uncles about the donkey being found and his events in, the root, in his root home. But he manages to leave the part out about being made king. I find this amazing. You know, you talk about donkeys and you don't talk about being made king. Well, God is working in the humble response of Saul to bring about his sovereign plan. Because now Samuel arrives in Mitzvah and he gathers all the people together. Only he and Saul know of Saul's anointing. Here, Samuel wants the people to know that Saul is the king that's chosen by God for them. He tells them what God has done for them, that he brought them out of Egypt. He provided everything that they needed. He fought all their battles, and yet they have rejected a government of a prophet and have chosen one of a captain. Samuel then calls all the clans together in verse 21. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near, near by its families, and the Mitrite family was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they went to look for him, he could not be found. Once again, Saul was nowhere to be found. The people had to search for him, and they found him in the luggage, and they brought him to Samuel, verses 23 and 24. 
So they ran and took him from there, and when he stood up among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there's no one like him among all the people. So the people shouted and said, Long live the king. God had already provided a king with the anointing of Saul. But to have the people see that this was their chosen or anointed one, Saul used the method of choosing by lot. They had rejected God. They had rejected all he had done as their king. But when they needed to choose a king, they went to God for direction and choice. Again, I find this amazing. Now, Samuel switches roles. He switches roles from prophet to judge. He writes down all the rules of the kingdom because if you have a kingdom, you've got to have rules. So verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom. He wrote them in a book and he placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own house. Verses 26 and 27. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah and the valiant men who uh, hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him. They didn't bring him any presents, but Saul, he kept silent. Everyone was now returning to their own home, including Samuel. The people now had their king and the rules of the kingdom. Even the king was subject to the Lord. Now all would be well, or so they thought. Evidently not everyone was happy with the outcome of the lot, but God being the provider and the protector that he always is, he changed the hearts of some really valiant men. Because you see, God provides for our need when we don't even see we have a need. Saul could have dealt with them as king. Instead, he silently went home, but God provided him valiant men to be to go with him. Did you notice that there was no formal anointing? There was no big celebration there. Everyone just went home, went about their daily life, including Saul, who's now was a king. Well, stay tuned for chapter 11. <laughs> Now the Ammonites were really bad neighbors. They had been conquered by Israel in the past. However, they were descendants of Lot. And so Israel kind of dealt with them a little more civilly than they did with their other neighbors. But now the sins of Israel once again caused a reason for battle and a battle with the Ammonites. And one of the reasons Israel, that was one of the reasons that they wanted a king in the first place to fight their battles for him. Well, now the situation has arisen. Saul's been given an opportunity to prove himself and he can consolidate his authority because you see the kingdom at that time was divided. So in verses 1 to 3, we're here where we provided the challenge. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged uh, Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach, reproach on all Israel. 
Now the elders of Jabesh said to him, Leave us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the entire territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we'll come out to you. Nahash, which by the way, if you look it up, means snake, is camped in 50 miles uh, from Saul's home. Rather than have a long and costly battle, Nahash decides to negotiate with Israel. Kind of tricky, sneaky, snaky type request. Uh, it would both humiliate Israel and it would cripple their army. So Israel was not able to use arrows due to the fact that they would now lose depth perception. And the right eye that was used for battle while the left eye was covered by a sh uh, the shield was now blind to right-handed soldiers. Very crafty. This enabled the Ammonites to take over the city without a loss of life. They would also plunder the wealth. They could enslave all the people and all that was required show up. Wisely, the elders asked for seven days to see if anyone would, could deliver them. Now you notice that they wept, that they cried out for help, but nowhere in those passages is there a mention of their cry out to God. The same God who had fought every one of those battles in the past is now forgotten. They called out to the people of Israel, who by the way, didn't help them in the past, so they're calling to their uh, fellow Israelites. They weep and they seek help in verses four to five. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and they spoke these words in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now Saul, who was coming in the, from the field behind some oxen, he said, what's the matter with the people that, they're, that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Notice, they did not call out to God or even to Samuel for assistance. I'm not surprised in that. How about you? These same people who now need help were the very same people who wanted to summon to fight their battles for them. But what is so amazing is that they did not call out to their new king that God had given him to do exactly what they needed. Saul heard the weeping and he, he had to do so much as to inquire as to the reason. After learning the situation, Saul is instantly moved to action. His heart was filled, with, he was given a filling of the Holy Spirit that moved him to righteous indignation. He was Israel's king. How dare the Ammonites challenge God's chosen people? Verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Now, I have to agree that his method of recruitment is a little unusual in verse 7. He took the yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and he sent them, he sent them throughout the territory by the hand of messengers. Blech. Then whoever does, not, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on all the people, and they came out as one man. It was so effective that it, it uh, was so motivating. You know, I believe this was quite sufficient for all motivation that they needed because it produced 300,000 sons of Israel and 300 men of Judah. 330,000 men of Judah, excuse me. Saul uh, 
gathered them all in Bezek, and he told the elders in Jabesh to tell the Ammonites a false, they to false surrender. Verses 9 and 10. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have your deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and that you may do to us whatever seems good. With God motivating their hearts, and Saul using the battle plan of Gideon, as seen in Judges 7, 16-19, the battle was set. Saul divided his army into three groups, and he attacked in early morning. Verse 11. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at morning watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two men were left together. Now, Saul succeeded because he was empowered by the Spirit of God, who used both Saul's natural gifts, but he also gave him the wisdom and the strength he needed. Saul was the head of an army, an inexperienced army in battle. But remember that the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep and use us. Saul's victory was important. It was, it was given, he was given authority from God, but he needed the stature before the people to become an effective leader. He has that now. Verses 12 and 13. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring out those men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death uh, this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul shows signs of a very effective leader, but also a very compassionate leader. He was like David at this point. He was humbled by his success. Effective leaders use their authority to honor God and to build up their people, but ineffective leaders use their people to build up their authority. Saul, later in his reign, became proud, self-sufficient, and eventually became abusive. It led to his failure and eventually to his death. Still, at this point in time, Saul was very humble, and he gave glory to whom it belonged. He gave it to God. Now he begins to become the king that God wanted him to be. Sad that this was to be short-lived. Next, he used this time to call all the king kingdom together in verses 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now at Mitzvah, they had accepted Saul as their king. But here at Gilgal, it confirmed Saul as king before the Lord. You're going to see that in 1 Samuel 12, 1 next week. What we would call here is a real coronation. Part of a ceremony that um, part of the ceremony was the peace offerings that were part of a covenant ceremony. They sacrificed and they offered to God, 
and then they ate part of that offering. This would signify Israel entered into a new renewed covenant, a relationship with the Lord. It also was a renewal of their willingness to obey him. This was a time of spiritual revival for the nation of Israel, and they were rejoicing at their victory. But as Andrew Bonar had said, we must be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Yet, you know, when listening to that statement, it got me thinking, who is my king? Who is it that I serve? Do I have earthly idols that reign over my life? Do I serve my Lord as king, or do I serve money, material possessions, or even personal relationships? I believe that we all need to repent and to cast away our idols and self-serving ways. We saw today an example of what happens when you don't do that. We all need to serve our king, the king who died on the cross for our sins. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and your king, you need to repent and do so today. I would like to close this lesson here in a Puritan prayer. So let us pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to us by your word. We are pierced by the thought that anything in us would resist those thoughts when you grant us repentance and open our eyes to the truth. We want to experience life deep in your presence. We want to be ever open to your correction longing for the awareness of our unworthiness that draws us to you. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord, whatever it takes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.